Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Wednesday, December 21st. Well, you know, I just get through COVID and I think this is great. I'm going to be back out there enjoying the holiday. And what happens? What are they calling it? A snow bomb? A snow cyclone? You know, yesterday I told everyone within the sound of my voice to think thoughts out into the universe to circumvent this. Because as you know, you know, if you've lived in this area your whole life or even part of your adult life, um, we sometimes, I won't say frequently, but maybe more often than not, we get these big warnings of, oh, this horrible storm is going to happen you know, and then it doesn't. So I thought if we all, you know, put our heads together and started sending good vibes out into the universe, maybe we could short circuit this one. Well, folks, if you are doing that, let me just say you better step up your efforts because um, we are not making sufficient progress in fighting off this storm. Here's what the National Weather Service says for Chicago. Conditions will deteriorate quickly on Thursday afternoon with snow, gusty winds, and plummeting temperatures. Um, now, as I understand it, we're going to get hit with some snow Thursday afternoon, and it is going to ease off into a light snow maybe for the rest of Thursday night and part of Friday morning. So overall, it doesn't sound so bad, but... But, but, here's what they're saying. Why they're, the National Weather Service in Chicago is calling this dangerous winter weather is because there's going to be strong winds. And they say that even if you only have an inch of snow, but you have uh, 50 mile an hour winds, that that inch of snow can bring near whiteout conditions on the road because it is just flying everywhere. Uh, also, we are told that the temperature, <laughs> it's like, why do we live here sometimes? The temperature is probably going to drop 30 degrees in a few hours. <sighs> Woo. So uh, starting tomorrow, um, we are going to get the snow. They originally said not till Thursday night. Now they're saying Thursday afternoon. We're going to get the snow. We're going to get high winds. And between Thursday and Friday, the temperature is just going to go at just about as far south as it can. If you look at their national maps, though, the states to the west of us are getting it even worse than we are. Um, I mean, you know, I'm seeing temperatures of negative 30 in the heartland or, you know, in the Iowa, South Dakota, Montana area. Um, so what is it supposed to be around here? Well, it's probably going to get down to zero, maybe a little lower than zero, maybe. But probably even on Friday at the worst of it, it's probably not going to be. Even 10 below. Come on, you live in Chicago. Get the heavy parka out. You know, the one that has the hood with the fur around it. 
And by the way, just a point of information, mittens actually keep your hands warmer than gloves. Uh, Yeah, they actually do, because your little fingers can warm each other up inside the mitten more easily than they can in gloves. Everything else, you pretty much know this. We live through this all the time. Um, If you are planning travel, particularly air travel, you might want to reschedule. Um, There has been um, news out this morning that some airlines are actually issuing waivers um, for people who are want to get want to get out in touch, but are having a, a tough time getting that done. So, what are we looking at total? Probably, you know, at the most five inches of snow, which I know you're thinking that's barely enough to cover my boots. Um, but again, what they're saying is that the fact that the temperature is going to drop really fast. There's going to be a lot of wind, and that that's really what is going to con- contribute to the dangerous conditions is the wind and the extreme cold. Now, I tried to, I don't know what other outdoor activities you might have planned. I was on the phone for a very long time on hold with the Chicago Botanic Garden to try to find out Is there a temperature or are there a set of weather conditions under which that they will close lightscape? And I know the Chicago Botanic Garden is not the only place. Like there's zoo lights in Lincoln Park. Um, A lot of the places where you go for holiday lights, you stay in your car and you drive through. I don't know if things will change for them. But where you are supposed to get out and walk, like at the Chicago Botanic Garden or Lincoln Park zoo lights... I was trying to call and get some information on to find out under what conditions they will just simply close it down because you do not want to struggle to get there and then find out it's closed. But uh, there must be about 100,000 other people trying to make those same inquiries. And I just I was on hold forever. Um, I was on hold literally until the show started at two. And I thought, yeah, you know, I probably ought to hang up now. So I did. Uh, so, you know, chances are if it's that miserable and cold, you're not going to want to go anyway. So whether they cancel or not might not matter to your family. But if you're one of those groups of hardy, long-term Chicagoans who venture out to do fun things no matter what, it would have been good information to have. And you would think with this storm that has been predicted for a couple of days now, maybe even in their outgoing out mail, they would say, oh, by the way, on Friday, if it drops down to X temperature, don't show up. So we'll do what we always do. We take it one day at a time, right? One day at a time. As long as you're thinking about it, as long as you have your layers out and, you know, we talk about this almost every year, but and most Chicagoans are pretty good about this. But do you know what to look for? Do you know what the symptoms of frostbite are? Your skin can be really red. Sometimes it can be painful at the very beginning when you're starting to get frostbite. Um, eventually, your skin will get, be numb. 
and um, it can even get a kind of a white or a grayish yellow color. And it can feel different. The skin texture feels different. If you would like a comprehensive guide to the storm and to the weather, go to Block Club Chicago. Kelly Bauer this morning posted pretty much everything you want to know about this bomb cyclone. You know, I hate it when they give them dramatic names. Snowpocalypse, you know. Yes, it's going to be cold, and there's going to be some snow, and there's going to be some wind, okay? Otherwise, we call that winter. Some winters in Chicago are more mild than others. When I um, was actually whining and complaining about this yesterday, I got a bunch of texts from people listening who said, you know what? The really cold weather is important, and they're absolutely right. When it doesn't get real cold here over the winter, that changes bug life and plant life. And oftentimes, the spring, if we've had a mild winter, spring can bring a lot of illness because bugs that otherwise would have or should have died off over the winter did not. Is that the silver lining? Is there a silver lining? Did we just find the silver lining? (laughs) That if we're miserable now, maybe we'll be less miserable in the spring? Okay. Um, The city of Chicago is setting up warming centers. You can call 311. Remember, in the city of Chicago, 311 is the non-emergency information number. If you don't have a police or a fire emergency, you just have a question, you call 311. And um, they will give you the addresses for the warming centers. North Avenue, Cottage Grove, Commercial Avenue, Kedzie, Wilson, 79th. Um, but 311, if you have a question about warming centers. Again, if you want to know everything there is to know about the snow cyclone, the bomb cyclone, the, the snow apocalypse, um, go to Block Club Chicago. Kelly Bauer posted her article about 930 this morning. And it will give you all the information and all the contact information that you need, okay? Yes, there's some interesting stuff going on politically. If you uh, turned on CNN at all this morning, you saw a smiling Ukrainian president sitting in the White House with Joe Biden. We're going to talk more about this right after a break. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. It's just refreshing. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm not sure how many times Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir Zelensky has left the country since this war started some 300 plus days ago. Can you believe that? (sighs) Anyway, uh, he has decided to make a very, um, well, it's a surprise to us. I'm... (laughs) You know, it was obviously very quietly negotiated behind the scenes. He's in Washington, D.C. 
He was uh, in the White House talking to President Biden today. He gave President Biden some Ukrainian awards. Remember, uh, Congress is uh, set to vote on the new budget, which contains a lot of aid for Ukraine, including something that we, excuse me, yeah, still a little raspy from COVID. I'll get through it. That we have been hesitant to provide, and that's uh, Patriot batteries. Um, That is the most advanced weaponry that we have committed to providing to Ukraine. And up until recently, we declined. But here's what Russia's doing. Russia is using those semi-defective Iranian drones, the ones they have left, to destroy Ukraine's grid. There are places in Ukraine where people have no heat. They are trying to destroy the grid so that people have no clean water, no power, no heat. If you know, if you can't defeat them on the battlefield, and if you can't win the hearts and minds, maybe you can freeze them out. This is the um, strategy Russia seems to be employing at this point in time. So uh, Ukraine rightly wants to be able to knock those drones out of the sky before they can do any more damage. And that is what the Patriot system does. It um, destroys this stuff while it's still in the air. One Patriot battery has eight launchers. And each of those launchers holds between 4 and 16 missiles. Uh, It is said that we are going to teach the Ukrainians how to use this. Obviously, the U.S. does not want to have military personnel on Ukrainian soil. We don't want to further inflame Vladimir Putin. So it is said that this training is going to take place in Germany. You know, this is something President Zelensky, he's been wanting these patriots for months, saying that if Ukraine does not control the skies, that they are not going to be able to continue to fight this war. And we kept saying no, we kept saying no, we kept trying to do half measures. And then we watched as Vladimir Putin used missiles and drones to try to take out the power grid and basically freeze the people of Ukraine out this winter. And uh, there is going to, there is supposed to be a President Biden and uh, President Zelensky news conference. It is uh, supposed to take place at roughly 3.30 Chicago time, We are, um, sometimes these things aren't always on time. We are preparing the necessary uh, feeds and satellites to be able to bring it to you live. So we are going to try to do that. Also, I would strongly urge you, President Zelensky is going to address Congress tonight. That is, that's going to be amazing. 
You know, talk about the right person for the right moment. That's what the Ukrainians got with this president. So we are um, hopefully going to be taking live that appearance, that news conference with President, both Presidents Biden and Zelensky that is supposed to take place roughly 3.30 this afternoon. And, um, and then there will be his address to Congress tonight. Important stuff. Also, kind of along these lines, there's some, there's some local, um, news along these lines. A Governor Pritzker has signed a bill that will cause all of our state funds to divest themselves, to sell off, to get out of any investments from Russia. House Bill um, 1293 was signed into law today. Here's what it says. Um, House Bill 1293 is divesting Illinois state pension funds from Russian and Belarusian banks and companies effective immediately. This action was taken in response to the unjustified invasion of Ukraine by Russia earlier this year and in support of the Ukrainian people and their continued resistance against Russian aggression. Now, admittedly, this isn't a huge stake, according to Statistics coming out of the governor's office, only a tiny percentage of Illinois state assets. They're saying it's less than 0.005% are invested in anything that has to do with Russia or Belarus. But still, it is important to do. It's important to do just to take a stand, you know? just to indicate to the rest of the world that those of us seemingly unaffected by what's going on, we're still trying to do our part. It's really, it's really important that we do our part. So we'll see. We'll see if an hour from now um, we get to hear directly from President Biden and President Zelensky, and what they have to say about this partnership going forward. As I said, you know, this new budget um, includes a huge spending package, a huge spending package for Ukraine. And I'm sure that, um, you know, nothing ever happens in a vacuum. I'm sure that President Zelensky's appearance just here, just now, is designed to strengthen the resolve of those who might waver. Now, Republicans looking out for their own self-interest and moderates are on board with Ukraine. Mitch McConnell came out yesterday. And, you know, he didn't talk about in terms of altruism or helping the people. Uh, He said that He believes that the Republicans in the Senate must continue to support Ukraine simply because it's good for the rest of the world. It is absolutely good for the rest of the world. It is good for the United States. Republicans used to be 
you, are you old enough to remember when Republicans were the party that was dead set against anything Russia or Russian? The party that wanted to thwart Vladimir Putin at every turn? Are you old enough to remember that? That used to be like one of their indestructible platforms. Russians bad, Americans good. Donald Trump changed all that. Oh, why can't we be friends with Putin? I'm friends with Putin. He's a great guy. If you were such good friends with Vladimir Putin, then why didn't you ask for Paul Whelan to be returned to the United States? And why didn't your good buddy Vladimir Putin do that? You had two years to get him out. Two years to get him out. Why, why didn't you do that? And um, also, remember, when Donald Trump was running for office back in 2016 and he said he had no financial connections to Russia, that he just thought Vladimir Putin was better as a friend than an enemy. And then it was it came to light much later that he was indeed trying desperately to get a Trump hotel in Moscow. He was going through every channel available to him to try to get a Trump hotel in Moscow. And that was while he was denying that he had any business interests, any business interests with Russia. He lied. Are you shocked? <sighs> we'll uh, hear what they have to say a little bit later today. Now let's take a break and get to Illinois politics right after this. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Before the midterm elections, we talked to a number of candidates who were running for office. One of the people that we had the most fun with uh, was Eric Sorensen, who was running to be the 17th district congressman from the state of Illinois. Uh, he is back today, and ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce you to the congressman-elect, Eric Sorensen from the 17th District. Eric, hello. Hello, Joan. It's great to be with you again. It is nice. It's nice to talk to you, Congressman. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Being the, being the, uh, uh, the only meteorologist in Congress, I would be <laughs> remiss if I didn't say, watch out for the weather in Chicago coming up <laughs> tomorrow night. Well, you know, I was talking about that at the start of the show today, and you're a meteorologist, and I'm not saying this to insult you, but those of us who've lived around this area for a long time know that sometimes there's a there's a big warning of a big storm, and then it never materializes. What do you think the odds are this one's really coming? <laughs> I, you know, I think this one, the, the cold, the wind, the... Um Wind chills, the icy roads, I mean, that's the biggest factor. And, you know, looking back, um, uh, you know, at, at previous snowstorms, I mean, this isn't going to be a blockbuster one, but, you know, it's like, you know, the, the roads don't, uh, the ice, the chemicals uh, to, to melt off the snow, they don't work when temperatures and wind chills get where they're going. So that's what becomes dangerous. Oh, really? There's a temperature where salt doesn't work anymore? <laughs> Did I know that? I didn't know that. I just figured you just throw it out there and it goes away. 
Right, right. So the farther below 32 degrees, the more energy that that salt needs to do to melt it off. So you get down to wind chills, you know, below zero, and uh, and you're going to have um, really big problems on the roads, no matter what kind of four-wheel drive you've got. Huh. Wow. Okay. Then I will pay more attention. So how have your days been since you were elected? How have you uh, celebrated, and how are you planning um, for your term in Congress? Right. So the 17th Congressional District, which includes um, Rockford, the Quad Cities, Peoria and Bloomington Normal, um, this was a tough race to be won. Um, and so we worked right up to, um, you know, election night. In fact, it was the early morning hours of um, Wednesday, November 9th, that we um, really knew the outcome. In a lot of these districts where you've got, um, you know, whether they're blue or red districts, um, these candidates have a lot more time to prepare before the election. We were thrown right into this because we won the election and then orientation basically immediately began. Um, but what was great is the orientation in uh, D.C. for new members of Congress, um, it is bipartisan. So you're thrown into a, you know, into an auditorium with uh, members elect. Um, and you're forced to to meet with one another. And what was pretty amazing for me, Joan, was I, I can tell you that there are some moderates on the other side um, that want to work together. Now, I, I'm not forecasting that that's going to happen after January 3rd. Um, but, you know, it is building those relationships between the election and swearing in. Um, a wise person told me um, that's the only time where you're going to make friends uh, with people on the other side of the aisle. And I was glad that at least I found some. Well, you know, I've been reporting on this group of moderate uh, Republican Congress people that have uh, they've come together. You know, we had the Freedom Caucus and we had the Tea Party and uh, they're now calling themselves Main Street. And they the re- only reason I read about them is because they were reaching out to Kevin McCarthy, ostensibly the next speaker. We'll see. And they were telling Kevin McCarthy, you know, don't just give away the store to the alt-right, far-right members of our party because there are more of us than there are of them. And we're not going to stand for it. You know, we are not going to stand for, you know, our policies and procedures being dictated by the radical elements, you know, the the Louis Gohmert's, the Matt Gates's, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the party. So maybe some of the ones who you met, who you perceived to be more middle of the road, will become a part of this Main Street coalition. I think so, Joan, because you, you look at where the electorate is, right? You know, I was the meteorologist on television in Rockford and the Quant Cities for 20 years. I was talking about climate change basically with farmers. They were the ones that were listening to what I had to say. Um, but when I was able to talk with, you know, uh, people from other parts of, uh, you know, the country, it's they realized, wait a minute, you're, you're describing the people that are in my district, too. Um, and maybe we need somebody that's going to be based on science, data and values. And, you know, and, and I think this is that that ability for us to move forward with this, with respect to to climate. Um, and, and I'll tell you what, I, you know, people want Congress to to get to work, um, you know, and take action. 
you know, when it comes to, you know, making those steps forward with respect to climate and lowering prices and creating jobs. And it doesn't matter if you're in a red or, or a purple or a blue district. People want results and they want somebody that's going to speak about the truth and results and not build this partisan divide that uh, that more and more people on Main Street uh, push back on. You know, I think you're absolutely right. People do want a Congress that accomplishes things that makes their lives better. But I uh, and I know you said that in this um, get to know you session, you got to know some Republicans who seem like they're willing to work in a bipartisan way. But from the outside looking in with the radical elements that exist in the Republican Party in Congress it, it seems like a recipe for chaos, Eric. It seems like a recipe for nothing getting done. I mean, Joe Biden can still do his executive orders. You know, the Senate can still do their thing with judges. But I don't know if all three parts of government are going to be able to work together. Did you get any sense of, of whether or not the Republicans are cohesive enough to get anything done? Yeah, I think our, our, uh, of course, our hope as Democrats is that um, that there will be um, that um, that movement, that bipartisan um, ability, right? But we also have to um, to be able to acknowledge that we did gain a seat in the Senate, that we do have the White House for two more years, and if the Republicans don't want to work with us in the House of Representatives, then we need to be able to communicate that they aren't willing to work with us. And we need to get up there and, and shout at what is most important. What are we fighting for? We're fighting for good jobs. We're fighting for, um, uh, for our unions. Um, we're fighting for what people in middle America want, right? You know, mm-hmm. if they want to go after Hunter Biden's laptop or if, if they want to go uh, for, for Tony Fauci, you know what? They're not working for the people, and we as Democrats need to call them out if that's the way that the House of Representatives is going to work for them. Did you get a chance to talk with Hakeem Jeffries, the new Democratic leader in the House? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, he has been has been great. He is he is a great leader. And I I can't wait for him to become the Speaker of the House in in two years. And he's also made that commitment um, to those of us in, in the Democratic caucus in the center part of the country, um, that uh, he's got our back. And, and Joan, it, it goes to also the fact that, you know, not only is this freshman class 70% diverse, um, where our, our Democratic freshmen are, are, we've got more people of color, we've got more women, we've got more LGBTQ people and representatives. Um, but with leader Hakeem Jeffries, diversity in our conference has made our Democratic caucus more representative of the whole country. So your impression of Hakeem Jeffries was sounds like it was incredibly positive. That's good right. to know. When, when you look, when you look at the vote um, that he got to to be the leader of our Democratic Party, it was it was overwhelming. Yeah. Um, it was unanimous. Yeah. Um, but then you look at the dysfunction that the Republican Party has today, um, where, you know, grab the popcorn for January 3rd. How many votes are we going to be voting on uh, for their next Speaker of the House? Um, mm-hmm. and it just shows that, that exists there that doesn't exist in the Democratic Party today. 
Do you think uh, that when you are in Congress that you are going to have to um, either tolerate or ward off or to live through all these supposed investigations and hearings that the more radical Republicans say, oh, you know, it's going to be Hunter Biden. There's going to be a big investigation into Afghanistan. Oh, my God. The la- One time a, f- a couple of months ago, I looked at the list of things that they said they were going to investigate, and there was at least nine. Hunter Biden's laptop, you know, COVID vaccines, though I don't know quite what they're investigating about that. Um, but, you know, do you are you girding your loins for a lot of nonsense? You know, I, I, it'll be interesting to see if that's the route that, that the Republican Party is going to take, um, because that will be an abrupt change uh, from the messaging that Republicans had in the midterms, um, because that wasn't a campaign strategy for them in the midterms. Uh, but it certainly seems to be the um, the communication um, of today. Um, but. You know, I think what we need to make sure that we're doing is we're focusing on the real issues and how they affect the people, um, you know, in, in our home district. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm going to try uh, to to not get attention pulled away from, you know, the most important issues that face our country, um, you know, like inflation, lowering prices and uh, and making sure that we we tackle the, um, uh, the the process that, you know, that the Republicans want to take away voting rights. And, uh, and abortion rights, and we need to make sure that we're standing firm on those. I want to talk to you about that. I also want to talk to you about what your priorities are going to be once you're in Congress. I'm speaking with Eric Sorensen, congressman-elect from Illinois' 17th District. We're going to be back right after a break. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT. 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Eric Sorensen, Congressman-elect for Illinois' 17th District. And he talked about right before we went to break about the role that reproductive rights and abortion played in the Democratic success in the midterms, which I think uh, was really underestimated, Eric. I mean, people were like poo-pooing it. Oh, well, you know, that was in June. People don't care anymore. And I was thinking, you know what? Talk to a woman. Um, so I do right. think that played a role. I also think that the repeated message from the January 6th committee about what happened and why it happened, I think that might have played a role, too, to get the kind of turnout that provided the results. I mean, yes, we maybe had some disappointments in California and New York. We didn't hang on to the House, but gosh darn it, we did pretty well in the Senate overall. Um, And one of the victories is you and sending you to Congress. What are your priorities going to be once you're there? Well, going back um, for a moment, Joan, you know, talking with people in this district, this is overwhelmingly a pro-choice district, um, Western Illinois is. And talking to people who may uh, or people that did, I, you know, uh, say that they were Republicans, but they voted on choice. Um, that was important. Um, it was important here in this district um, several weeks before the election. 
um, that Governor Pritzker and I held a uh, press conference um, in the Quad Cities to talk about reproductive uh, rights and that they were under attack and that the, the decisions that people were going to make at the ballot box were going to have an effect on the rights that we would have in the future. Um, and then moving along forward, um, it's making sure that, you know, now that we do have um, the Republicans taking control of the House of Representatives, um, it's making sure that these stories don't go away, uh, that we do not push these um, these stories into the background in the 118th Congress, um, because people understand that their their rights are under assault um, like they've never seen before. And and we're not going to stand for it. Um, we need to keep the pressure on. Uh, to to those right wing politicians that are willing to remove our rights, without question. And even though the supposedly there was a memo put out among Republicans for talking points that said, you know, stop talking about contraception and other things. Um, you know, we'll get to that down the road. And yet, and yet, nobody seems to have gotten that memo because more and more you're hearing people um, you know, come out. Well, you say Brian Kemp in Georgia said that if the state legislature passed a ban on contraception, well, then he would just sign it. You know, of course he would. Uh, so this is this. You're absolutely right. This is not a battle that has been won. It is ongoing. And we can't, you know, I mean, yeah, let's the election's over. Let's take a few minutes to pat ourselves on the back and, you know, have a an adult beverage and then let's get back to work. It just it doesn't stop, does it, Eric? Right. Right. And, you know, we have to look at, you know, marriage equality. I mean, what a great stride that we've had here at the end of the 117th Congress. But, we, you know, um, uh, make no mistake that the Republicans are still after our, our trans community. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we need to sure that we're standing up for everyone in the LGBTQ community um, because um, the Republicans aren't, aren't going to change their tune. Um, and, and I think we, we should know better than that uh, to expect that. And, you know, the fact here is that, um, you know, in this uh, 50-50 district in Western Illinois, um, that the people here um, overwhelmingly elected their, the first LGBTQ member of Congress from Illinois, um, that I will stand up for everyone in our community to make sure that we stand up against the hate that the Republicans and the extreme right wing parts of the, um, you know, the, the MAGA group that they've already shown against mm-hmm. our, our, our brothers and sisters. And we can't forget that the discrimination is still legal in our country against LGBTQ people. And, and we need to protect them. And with the Supreme court, we have, um, they are no longer a body that we can that we can count on. I mean, by all accounts, this last case that they heard of this woman from Littleton, Colorado, who didn't want to be required to design a wedding website for a gay couple because it was somehow it violated her free speech, uh, which makes no sense. But from what I thought was interesting from the reporters who cover the Supreme Court, who monitor the questioning of these cases to give an indication as to how justices are leaning. Those reporters got the sense that the Supreme Court is trying to find a way to back this woman up and yet not make it so broad that it becomes um, a national war on gay people, that they were that they were going to try to thread the needle. You know, good luck for that. <laughs> 
because it's already it already feels like it's a war on gay and trans people in this country. And I don't see how you back up a woman like that without, you know, publicly run a business. And, you know, there no absolute harm comes to her financial or otherwise from actually uh, doing her job. Mm -mm. That's a dangerous door to open. And I, I, I sadly feel that the Supreme Court is going to be opening that door. What do you think, Eric? You know, I you know, I I worry about that too, Joe. Because does this open it up to to someone who is um, is a is, not that I shop at Hobby Lobby, but does that mean that the cashier won't check me check me and my partner out? Um, exactly. Does that mean that the, the person at uh, at Walmart isn't going to bag up my groceries? Um, you know, the fact that the court even heard this case, Joe, and I think this is an indication that we have to codify our rights if we want to hold on to them in our future. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, you knocked on a lot of doors. You talked to a lot of people when you were running for Congress. What did you learn? Um, I learned that, you know, probably the greatest thing that I learned um, just came from a lady in the grocery store, Jewel. Um, she, you know, in the produce section, she stopped me and she goes, Eric, I really miss how you used to tell us how the weather works on channel eight. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, I love that, you know, I, um, you know, I got that grandmotherly pat on the back, but Joan, it was, as she was walking away, um, she said, uh, you know, I, I can't wait for you to get, to get to Congress to explain to us how Congress works for us. And, uh, I, what a great thing. Because then I realized what is she telling me that she wants out of her next congressperson? She wants somebody to to communicate to her. She wants someone to communicate her values in Congress. And and I realized at that moment that we do need the meteorologist from television, the person that spent 20 years on television, to go and tell people how it is. And even in this minority, in the House of Representatives, if, as we as Democrats are in the minority, We've got somebody now that has 22 years of experience of communicating this and someone that's going to be able to be steadfast. If the Republicans want to peddle some BS on television, um, that we're going to have the defense to that, um, because that's what we're going to need um, if we want to take back the House of Representatives and take back our majority in two years. You just hit on something that I think is so critical, and it is not necessarily something that Democrats do well, and that is to speak plainly and speak clearly using language that gets the message across. So many times I hear Democrats talking about uh, some issue, some bill, some whatever, and they sound as if they're speaking to um, an audience of PhDs, you know, the no, no worry about, you know, throwing out all the jargon, throwing out all the legalese kind of stuff. And what I have found and what I think some of the most successful politicians do is they talk to people like people. You know, Cory Booker uh, is very good at this. There, uh, Eric Swalwell is good at this. Pete Buttigieg is good at this. And there's not enough of that. And I, I hope that those same skills that allowed you to communicate clearly with the people who were in your television audience are going to, 
are going to really serve your district well going forward? Yeah, we have to tell it like it is. Um, we have to have ordinary conversations. And, and that's overwhelmingly what people wanted when they voted here in the 17th Congressional District. Um, you know, they had the choice between a politician and, and their weatherman that they've trusted for 20 years. Um, and that trust is so important because it's not just that I am trustworthy when I speak. I'm trustworthy when I listen. So when I listen to the people in my district, um, they know that it's worth something. And, and my hope is that we get more people, more everyday people that are going to run for Congress. Um, you know, and looking at the people that I'm going to serve with in Washington, um, you know, it's, it's that we've got a teacher from North Carolina. We've got a pediatrician from Colorado. Uh, we've got a woman who's an auto mechanic from Washington State. And we have a meteorologist uh, from the heartland. Um, that this wide breadth of people in Congress are, are going to be not only willing to make a difference, um, but are going to communicate it. And I think that right there is one of the keys that we've been missing all along. And have you gotten a sense in your orientation that there are other colleagues like you starting off their congressional careers? Correct. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's, Joan, the, the inspiring part for me. Is, uh, I was worried being the, the, the meteorologist in northern Illinois for 20 years that, um, that I wasn't the legislator, that I didn't have the political science degree. Um, but I'll tell you what. Um, the House of Representatives is such a unique body because these are people that were elected to represent the people um, and they're ordinary people. Um, you know, while there are quite a few lawyers that are going to, to Congress and that's wonderful, um, there are real people. And even the lawyers that I'm going with um, are, are real people as well. And that we're going to work together in the Democratic caucus to find solutions to the problems. Um, and I think the big question um, will be whether or not the other side is. Are they only going to look out for their, their best interests, or are they going to solve the problems for the, uh, for the American people? And, and I think you and I both have a hunch of, of where we're going. Um, but, uh, but certainly there's a lot of work ahead. But the communication and the transparency, I think that's going to be key. At what point do they give you like a big binder? Okay, buddy, here's all the bills that um, your fellow colleagues are putting forward. Figure out what you want to support and what you don't and where you can help. At what point does that happen? <laughs> Our legislative director certainly has her work cut out for her. But, um, uh, but uh, also, I, I will tell you that uh, forthcoming, uh, there will be a Heartland Caucus. Um, a mem- you know, members of the Democratic Party, uh, specifically from the Midwest and from the Great Lakes. Um, we have unique challenges here um, that are different from uh, the East and the West Coast. And so having unified voices in the Heartland Caucus is going to be wonderful to get things done. What particular, is there one or two pieces of legislation that you just can't wait to dig your teeth into? Well, well, certainly it's finding solutions to to climate. We've got to be able to uh, build up our resiliency. Um, and and that is is going to be, you know, essential, especially when we look at where the farm bill is going to go, um, which, of course, is going to start here in, I believe, March. 
Um, that's a five-year plan. Um, it also includes SNAP benefits. We need to make sure that nutrition remains part of the farm bill uh, for for many years. Um, the uh, the Republicans have wanted to split that apart. We need to make sure that that nutrition and SNAP benefits remain part of the farm bill. Um, and those are immediate effects uh, as soon as the 118th begins. Well, I wish you well. I think you're going to be terrific in Congress, and I would like to do regular updates with you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, Eric? I'd I'd love it, Joan. Thank you so much. It was good to talk with you again. uh, Good to talk with you, and congratulations. Thank you. Uh, We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more after this. This is WCPT 820. Listen in Chicago on 820 AM or stream us live on WCPT 820.com. The TuneIn Radio app or tell Alexa or Google to play WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you CPT 820. As you know, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, I am a big reader, a huge believer in books, and a um, Incredible, steadfast supporters of libraries. I um, I used to go to the library and buy books, and then my house started to fill up, and I tried to stop buying books, which made me even more dependent on my local library. So when I hear about a local library that's in trouble, it's something that I really want to shine a light on and want you to know about because... Most of us really want our libraries to function, be funded, be there for us and our families. And when that's not happening, we need to know about it and we need to do something about it. I'm talking right now to Elizabeth Lynch, who is a librarian and also an organizer for the Save Niles Library Group. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on, Joan. So tell us, what's going on in Niles? Well, um, um, in the last election, um, we got some new board members, and they have um, run a a campaign that is essentially anti-library. And these are library board members? These are people who ran for the library board? They ran for the library board, um, and they ran um, essentially on a a promise of cutting. And um, they delivered on that promise. Almost immediately, uh, they put a freeze on purchasing. They uh, put a freeze on hiring staff. They cut off um, uh, outreach to schools and nursing homes. They... um, pushed out the library director. Um, So they have cut um, a number of services and programs and um, a little over a million dollars from the library's budget. Was this a case of people not understanding who they were voting for? Or for some reason, have the people of Niles turned against their local library? What's going on? What's the bigger issue here? 
I definitely don't think that the people of Niles um, have turned against their library. Um, I think uh, essentially this was a low turnout election. I think people weren't paying attention. I think people um, were hearing misinformation from um, these candidates. And um, I I think essentially no one imagined that there could be people who are truly anti-library. I mean, that just sounds so wild. Uh, Libraries are the kind of thing that should bring us all together, that we all love. Um, And I think that we, you know, and I know, I guess, because we heard from a lot of voters that they felt misled and that um, they were angry with the actions that the board took once these people came into power. So uh, the voters didn't really maybe have a grasp of what was at stake. What do you see the cuts that have been passed? What will they do to the library? Well, for one thing, um, we have lost a lot of staff. And because there is this hiring freeze, Um, the uh, director is not able to hire staff to replace them. So they have lost um, about 47% of the staff. I think we are at 38 staff members that have left and have not been replaced. That includes children's librarians. That includes the uh, director and assistant director. That includes maintenance staff who maintain the building and clean bathrooms. So um, there are times when you will go to the library now and there is no one at the desk to help. There are, um, I think it's about half the programs have been cut um, since they have took, they, they took power. Um, so there's just um, a lot there's a lot less help that you can get. There are a lot uh, fewer services that are going out to the community that are available to the community in the library. Um, there's just less service to the community. Um, was there any underlying reason why all these people left? Was there something going on at the library? I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, it's natural for um you know, people to leave over time. When you're talking about several years, there are some staff who are going to find other jobs or move or retire. But this level of uh, staff leaving is much more than normal. A lot of staff members said they left because of this board, because of the actions they were taking. Um, because they were disrespected. Um, the business manager came out very publicly to say that board members, these anti-library board members, were asking him to do things that were unethical. Um, and um, it, the staff also um, formed a union um, during or, you know, in response to uh, these anti-library trustees taking power. Um, and the board members have been fighting the union every step of the way. Um, so I think there were a lot of staff members who, for their own sake, um, had to leave, had to find another place um, that respected the work that they do, respected their expertise and respected their, you know, their basic rights as a worker. Um, there were, with this level of staffing, uh, there, there are workers who can't take time off. <laughs> they can't call in sick. They can't 
uh, take time to be with their family. How long a term were these people elected for? What is the library board term usually? Um, There are different terms. So um, a normal term is six years. Uh, But there were um, and and will be in the next election terms that are shorter because um, a a trustee stepped down um, in the middle of their term. So in the next election, for example, there are two six-year terms, a four-year term, and a two-year term. Um, Any of the people who were elected to the board and have brought about these changes, are any of them going to be on that ballot? Uh, They are. Um, So one of the things that we organized around was asking uh, these um, anti-library trustees to step down. Um, they were clearly, um, you know, they had broken the public trust and were harming the community. And there it was one, um, one of the trustees who did step down. And since then, we have had a 3-3 split on the board, uh, which has been very contentious. Um, who breaks those ties? Of- well, no one. So, uh, this is getting a little off course, but it is important. Um, one of the things that happened is that, like, under a normal process, the library board would appoint someone to the empty seat because uh, you need the, the board to function in the interim between elections. Uh, the anti-library trustees refused to do that. They would not appoint someone. Uh, During the process, there were, um, I think, 11 people who applied, many of whom were, um, you know, extremely qualified to serve, uh, but they refused to appoint someone. And we pushed for um, there to be a law passed at the state level. That law was passed. The Secretary of State now has the power to appoint someone to the board. Um, But that actually first happened last year. And then one of the anti-library trustees, his name is Joe McCullough, um, sued and got um, an injunction against appointing someone to the board. The our our state representatives had to go back um, at the state level and pass another law. Um, and that was just signed by the governor. And it's actually tonight that we are hoping to finally see Mayor Kadir, the uh, trustee selected by the secretary of state, uh, be sworn in. But you don't know for sure that's going to happen. Well, when you're dealing with... Oh, Joe hang on. Well, we need to take a commercial break. This is like, okay. this is like, this is like the plot of a novel, Elizabeth. And it's <laughs> I know, so hard to believe it's happening here in the state of Illinois. Elizabeth Lynch has, uh, founded a group called Save Niles Library, where just all hell's breaking loose. We're going to continue our conversation <laughs> right after this. Thank you. 
The family meeting. Breaking news. McRib is back. Oh, my gosh. And they got the nerve to say, get it while it's last. They always say that. (laughs) They always say that. And I never get it. I don't know if people are even buying it. The dude who created McRib must have had dirty pictures on somebody because they should have fired his or her ass a long time ago. Say, listen, I want this in the menu and I want my cut. (laughs) Right. Because I saw what you did with your nasty vibe. The family meeting. Sundays, 4 to 6 p.m. is sponsored by Identity Guard. Protect your identity for as little as $6 per month. Visit LookAfterMyID.com. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Elizabeth Lynch. We have been talking, for those of you just joining us, man, oh man, this is like a soap opera. Elizabeth Lynch is a librarian and also organizer of the Save the Niles Library, Save Niles Library campaign. Niles, because of low turnout and perhaps some misinformation, elected three library board trustees that set about to basically gut the library. Um, even though they were understaffed, there was no more hiring. Um, there was no more purchases, which I assume means no more big book buys. Um, programs were cut. And people are, are kind of reeling there from, from what's been happening. Now, Elizabeth, explain to me again, walk me through again what has happened legislatively and what may or may not happen tonight. So um, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, or I guess about two years ago now, um, one of the anti-library trustees stepped down from the board. And that left a 3-3 split. That um, obviously means that the library is essentially not functioning. They cannot agree on anything. And we pressured uh, the state to come up with a law that would allow the Secretary of State to appoint someone to that position. Um, They were so split Um, And the anti-library trustees were so unwilling to compromise that they refused to appoint someone themselves to the board. So uh, that law was passed unanimously, I would point out, um, and signed by the governor. But Joe McCullough, one of the anti-library trustees, um, got a judge to um, sort of put a stay on on that law. And uh, legislators had to go back and change the law, pass a new law um, in order to um, to give the secretary of state this power. Um, so tonight we are hoping that Mayor Kadir, the pick from the secretary of state, uh, will be sworn in. The reason we're not sure is that Joe McCullough is extremely litigious. He loves to sue. Uh, Not only was he able to, um, you know, stop this law from going into effect, but he also sued another member of the board personally. Um, He was hoping to have her removed from the board. He did lose that lawsuit. um, And not only did he lose it, but the judge found that the suit was so without merit that he has had he has to pay back the legal fees uh, to the library. Uh, that's an extraordinary measure. That means it was really a frivolous lawsuit. 
Yeah. And that tends to be the case for Joe Makula. Um, he knows that by even uh, just starting these lawsuits, he can uh, wreak havoc. It's like the Donald Trump philosophy of you don't want to do what I do. I'm going to bury you in the legal system. And it's just it's just tragic and uh, and un- unbelievable, um, you know. But if any of these proceedings brought by Mr. McCoola ever made it to the Illinois Supreme Court, you would think that he would lose once and for all. Or is it? I, and I know sometimes <laughs> I know sometimes p- places, organizations that have not uh, huge budgets want to just settle these things and be done with it yeah. because folks, if you've ever been to court, if you've ever been involved in a suit, either bringing one or defending against one, even if you're a hundred percent in the right, it ain't cheap. It isn't no, cheap. You, you know, it, it costs, it costs a lot of money. And that's why sometimes these people get away with this as a harassing tactic because most people just don't want to fight. That's absolutely right. And, you know, the the other thing to keep in mind here is that when he sues another trustee um, and he has sued the library um, in the past, it, it's the library and it's the taxpayer that ends up paying the cost. Um, the library has has lawyers and they're the ones who um, are going to defend the trustee, that they're going to defend the library against this lawsuit. And we're all we're all paying for it. Um, so it's maybe he has tons of money. I don't know where he's getting all of this, uh, but it, there is a cost to the rest of us. And just to be clear, I mean, this isn't we've we've been talking for the last, oh, my God, two years about efforts to ban books and, you know, remove anything that has to do with LGBTQ from the libraries. This doesn't seem to be that kind of of an effort. This seems to be just a. I don't want to pay for this. And, you know, so there, so there. Yeah, no, I, in, um, in some ways it is very different. This isn't about a culture war. Um, and, you know, this isn't about LGBTQ books or books that deal with race and racism. Um, this is about dollar bills, right? Um, on the other hand, they are intricately related. I mean, I think the uh, right-wing strategy here is ultimately to shut down services, to cut off um, the, the ways that we lift each other up in the community and the ways that we connect with each other in the community. And, you know, one way to do that is by making it seem like libraries are uh, you know, groomers who are Ugh. infecting children with bad ideas. Another way to do it is the way that Joe McCoola has gone about it, which is to claim that all of this is waste and that people aren't worth spending money on. And unfortunately, um, there's at least some segment of the population that's convinced by that. Um, I don't believe it is the majority. I don't believe it is the majority either. So, when will you know uh, what's going to happen tonight? <laughs> well, um, I will be there at the meeting. It's at 6 p.m. tonight. Um, and so far, we haven't heard any rumblings of efforts on his part to keep it from moving forward. Um, but, you know, this, there's, uh, it's not just tonight. 
Um, we have an election coming up in April. And so this is about getting pro-library trustees elected. It's about getting people to actually vote, because I really think if people um, are paying attention and they vote their values, they're going to vote for libraries. Well, that would be like voting against a library to me is like voting against a puppy. Who could do that? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I never imagined, and I think most people in our community never imagined that there could be people who who hated libraries. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Um, th- any of our listeners who are in the Niles area, if they would like to help you out with your Save Niles Library campaign, what can they do? Where do they go? Um, how do they sign up? Yeah, we have a website at org. And they can find out more about what's been going on. They can find out more about the candidates that are running the next election. And they can donate to the campaign. We need to... um, You need to get some big billboards up before the next election. (laughs) We do. Um, And, you know, we need volunteers. We need volunteers who um, can go door to door and talk to voters. We need people to spread the word. So even if um, all someone can do is talk to their neighbor um, or talk to someone who lives in the library district, um, that's going to make a big difference. So if you get this fourth seat filled, will that Mm -hmm. solve the problems? Um, It's not going to solve all the problems. It is. I'm, I'm hoping that um, Umer Kadir is going to move quickly to end the hiring freeze and, um, you know, sort of right some of the wrongs that are um, most immediate. But we need to win the next election, <laughs> absolutely, because uh, there is a full slate of anti-library trustees running, and if they get back in power. It's only going to get worse. And, the, and, you know, sometimes, particularly with local issues, you know, places like this radio station and a lot of the a big, you know, the Tribune, the Sun-Times, everybody's looking at the big issues, the statewide issues. And sometimes it is hard for a local person to learn everything they need to know about the local issues that are on their ballot, you know, especially since we've seen the demise of a lot of local newspapers and local sources of reliable news for what's going on in the neighborhood. You know, you're right. Sometimes talking to your neighbor is the best is the best that you can that you can do. Um, and I think that it's a real problem. It's a real problem to try to educate people on local issues sometimes and who's who and what's what, particularly when the candidates themselves are doing the best they can to muddy the waters. So um, I would anything that we can do to help you, if you want to um, touch back um, in the new year and we're going to keep an eye on this and help you out where we can. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Joan. Well, I appreciate everything that you're doing to make the library, to restore, shall we say, the library in Niles Mm -hmm. back to its former glory. 
Um, and thank you for your efforts. And um, I'm serious, Elizabeth. Whenever there's a development, please reach out to me. You've got my email. You've got Julia's email. Reach out to us and let us know how this progresses because we're going to keep an eye on oh, this. We will. Okay. We absolutely will. Thank you so much. Great. Um, again, remember, it's called Save Niles Library. That's the campaign. It is, especially if you live in the area, it's something that you need to know about and get involved with, okay? We are going to take a break. Um, we may be hearing President Biden and Zelensky hold a news conference when we come back right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are waiting for President Biden and Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir Zelensky to uh, come out and have a news conference. This is the Ukrainian president's first international trip since Russia invaded his country some 300 plus days ago. While we are waiting for that to happen, a couple of housekeeping things that I want to share with you. We are going to be doing a mayoral forum. We're going to be um, having current mayor Lori Lightfoot and some of her challengers sit down with us. It is going to p- take place on January 26th. We are going to, of course, be carrying it live on the radio. It is going to be from noon to one. I am going to be hosting along with Santita Jackson and Patty Vasquez, and we will be talking to the mayor and her challengers and find out what they want you to know about them. So uh, if you haven't, or even if you have made up your mind about who you want to vote for to be Chicago's next mayor, that vote, of course, February 28th, and if nobody gets 50%, then we will have a runoff in March between the top two candidates. This is what happened when Lori Lightfoot got into office last time. There was a very crowded field of candidates. She and Tony Preckwinkle were the top vote getters, and they went into a runoff that she won quite handily. So this is Thursday, January 26th at noon. It will be the WCPT Chicago Mayoral Candidates Forum. You can hear it on the radio. You can listen to it on your computer. And I have um, I have to clarify this with uh, Tim and Matt and all the people organizing this. But I know we are going to do it in an auditorium downtown. So how those seats become available or when those seats become available, I will let you know as soon as they let me know. Okay. So we will uh, we will get that done for all of us. One other quick point of information. I was talking at the beginning of this show about how we are supposed to get this terrible, terrible weather and um, how I was on hold for a really long time because I was trying to figure out if um, places like the Chicago Botanic Garden or, say, the Lincoln Park Zoo with the zoo lights, places that do outdoor evening holiday celebrations 
what their policies were going to be as far as when they would pull the plug. Because remember, the weather is supposed to be, it's supposed to start snowing tomorrow afternoon. Um, they're saying two to five inches, but the danger is going to be that there's going to be a lot of wind. And they're saying that even if it's just one inch of snow, there may be enough blowing to create semi whiteout conditions. And also because the temperature is going to drop so quickly to such a degree, possibly as much as 30 degrees, that um, there will be icy roads. So it, um, it could be the kind of thing where you just literally cannot be at an outdoor event. And I'm very sorry, Jeffrey. Jeffrey reminds me all the time when I talk about this kind of stuff that I always forget to mention the Morton Arboretum because I do. Um, I, I tend to think in terms of the Botanical Gardens, Lincoln Park Zoo, and I always, I always forget the Morton Arboretum and Jeffrey always sends me an email and he said, you know what? Because they're doing a big outdoor holiday thing, too. But he wanted me to know that he actually got through to them or at least was able to pull up information on their website. And they, the Morton Arboretum website is still selling tickets for this weekend's outdoor events. So clearly they are either not concerned about this or not being as terribly proactive. One thing that you need to know, though, is um, with some of these organizations, you know, they're nonprofits. They don't operate with a huge margin. And a lot of times, if there is bad weather or something that precludes you from using your tickets, there are not always rain checks. In fact, um, Jeffrey says for the Morton Arboretum, there are no rain checks, which is why, again, I was trying to get through to the Chicago Botanic Garden and find out what their policies were going to be, but I wasn't able to do that. So you have to figure out. The good news is if you've bought expensive tickets and because of the weather you don't get to go, if the organization sponsoring the event is a nonprofit, you might you should talk to your, your accountant. It might be a tax write-off if you've made a purchase at a nonprofit and gotten nothing of value in exchange for those tickets. Maybe you get something off of your tax returns. Maybe Uncle Sam will make up the difference to you. So that's one. Jeffrey, I hope you're happy. I have I'm and I'm going to try to be more careful about this going forward. That we are going to pay attention to the Martin Arboretum as well. We are still waiting for Presidents Zelensky and Biden to take the podium because obviously we don't want to interrupt them once they get started. Lady B, uh, why don't we take this next break a little bit early so we can uh, get it under our belt and then we can go full tilt once the presidents emerge. We'll be right back after this. Take Joan Esposito live, local and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We are currently waiting for President Joe Biden and President Volodymyr Zelensky 
to uh, come out and hold a joint news conference. This is the first trip outside of the country, out and first international trip that the Ukrainian president has taken since the war with Russia began some 300-plus days ago. The president of Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky, is also going to appear tonight on Capitol Hill, where he addresses both chambers of Congress. Uh, there is a big, big package for Ukraine in uh, the newest budget. Uh, there is an additional $44.9 billion in emergency military and economic assistance for Ukraine. Also, something that hasn't happened before is we are going to be giving them Patriot missile launchers. And uh, apparently we are going to ship those missile launchers to Germany. The Ukrainians who need to be trained in how to operate them will come to Germany and, and learn those lessons because all of Western Europe and NATO and President Biden, they have been very careful not to put any Western military people inside Ukraine. They don't want to provoke Vladimir Putin. They don't want to give him any reason to escalate. Part of the reason why we are providing Patriot missiles is because Russia has been using those Iranian drones that they bought to attack with drones and missiles. The infrastructure, the energy infrastructure of Ukraine, there are places where people have no heat. Uh, there are places where clean drinking water is hard to come by. Water, heat, fuel to cook food. Basically, you know, in the words of President Biden, you know, it's it's like Putin is trying to freeze out the people of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin, never someone who has been known to follow the accepted rules of who you attack during war and that military targets are fair game. Civilians and civilian targets are not fair game. Supposedly, part of the reason why Vladimir Zelensky is here today is because of uh, the work of Nancy Pelosi, that she was crucial in making sure that he was able to come to Washington and um, speak with people in person. The um, the new Congress, the new Republican Congress, is um, one of the issues that they are wrestling with between the far alt-right members and the more moderate Republicans is whether or not our continued support of Ukraine is going to go forward in the next Congress. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene and those of her ilk have talked about, you know, that we don't need to spend any more money there. And Kevin McCarthy, of course, the invertebrate who is trying to become speaker, is reportedly behind the scenes promising pretty much anybody pretty much anything if he can get their vote, because there are just enough of those alt-right crazies to deny him the speakership. It's going to be it's going to be crazy. Um, Lady B, I don't know what your monitor is showing you. I know sometimes our monitors aren't synced up, but I just saw uh, President Zelensky and President Biden come out from the back room and take the podium. Okay. Okay, 
Let's um, let's go to Washington, D.C. live where you're going to hear first President Biden and then Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. I'm honored to welcome you back to the White House. We spent an awful lot of time on the telephone as well as on video, but it's good to see you in person again. And uh, we've been in close and frequent communication throughout this conflict from the very beginning, but particularly uh, it's particularly meaningful to talk with another in person, look each other in the eye, because leadership through this uh, terrible crisis has inspired the Ukrainian people, as you have done, Mr. President, and the American people and the entire world. This visit to Washington, your first trip outside Ukraine since February, comes as President Putin is escalating his attacks, his brutal attacks, targeting critical infrastructure to make life as hard as possible for not only innocent Ukrainians, but children and young children and everything from orphanages to schools. It's just outrageous what he's doing. And we've, uh, as we've heard, into the, as we head into the new year, it's important for the American people and for the world to hear directly from you, Mr. President, about Ukraine's fight and the need to continue to stand together through 2023. This visit also falls on the 300-day mark of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. 300 days since Putin launched an unprovoked, unjustified, all-out assault on the free people of Ukraine. 300 days of Ukrainian people showing Russia and the world their steel backbone, their love of country, and their unbreakable determination, and I emphasize unbreakable determination, to choose their own path. To Ukrainian people, I say to them all, you have demonstrated, you've shown your strong stand against aggression in the face of the imperial appetites of autocrats who wrongfully believe you might, you might, they, they might be able to make might right, and they're not able to do it. Thus far, they've not, they've stood alone, you know, and you have, but you haven't stood alone. You have had significant, significant help. We've never stand alone. You will never stand alone. When Ukraine's freedom was threatened, the American people, like generations of Americans before us, did not hesitate. The support from all across this country, Americans of every walk of life, Democrats and Republicans alike, had the resources and the, to rebound and resounding united way to do, provide unequivocal and unbending support for Ukraine. Because we understand in our bones that Ukraine's fight is part of something much bigger. The American people know that if we stand by in the face of such blatant attacks on liberty and democracy and the core principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity, the world would surely face worse consequences. And as I said, when Putin rolled his tanks into Ukraine in February, American American people are prepared to have us stand up to bullies, stand up for freedom. That's who we are as Americans. And that's exactly what we've done. Even before the invasion began and Putin threatened Ukraine by building up his forces, we helped make sure Ukraine would be prepared to defend itself even before they crossed into Ukraine. We provided a steady stream of defensive weapons, including air defense systems and artillery, ammunition, and so much more. And we've not done it alone. From the very beginning, the United States rallied allies and partners from around the world 
to stand strong with Ukraine and impose unprecedented, and I emphasize unprecedented, sanctions and export controls on Russia, making it harder for the Kremlin to wage this brutal war. More than 50 nations have committed nearly 2,000 tanks and other armored vehicles, more than 800 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery ammunition, and more than 50 advanced multiple rocket launching systems, anti-ship and anti-air defense systems, all to strengthen Ukraine. Together, we provided billions of dollars in direct budgetary support to make sure the Ukrainian government can keep providing basic fundamental services to the Iranian people, like health care, education, and emergency personnel. This includes another $2 billion that in direct budget support from the American people that the World Bank distributed earlier this week. We provided humanitarian assistance to help the millions of Ukrainians who have been forced to flee their homes because of Putin's inhumane, brutal war. Communities across Europe have opened their hearts and their homes to help Ukrainians in need. The United States has been proud to welcome more than 221,000 Ukrainians seeking refuge since March of 2022, including as part of Uniting for Ukraine, as, as part of our Uniting for Ukraine program. And today, USAID is committing more than $374 million in urgently needed humanitarian assistance for Ukraine. This will help provide food and cash assistance for more than 1.5 million Ukrainian people, as well as access to health care, safe drinking water, and help stay warm in the winter to more than, for more than 2.5 million Ukrainians. The United States and our allies and partners around the world have delivered a broad range of assistance at historic speed and has been critical to bolstering Ukraine's success thus far. Ukraine has won the Battle of Kyiv, has won the Battle of Kherson, has won the Battle of Kharkiv. Ukraine has defied Russia's expectations at every single turn. <clears throat> and President Zelensky, Zelensky, you have made it clear that he is uh, open to pursuing, uh, um, well, let me put it this way. He's not open, but you're open to pursuing peace. You're open to pursuing a just peace. We also know that Putin has no intention, no intention of stopping this cruel war. And the United States is committed to ensuring that the brave Ukrainian people can continue, continue to defend their country against Russian aggressions as long as it takes. And I want to thank the members of Congress and their, for their broad bipartisan support to Ukraine. And I look forward to signing the omnibus, omnibus bill soon, which includes $45 billion dollars. $45 billion in additional funding for Ukraine. I'll also sign into law the National Defense Authorization Act, which includes author authorities for, to make it easier for the Department of Defense to procure critical munitions and defense materials for Ukraine and other key materials to strengthen our national security. Today, I'm announcing the next tranche of our security assistance to Ukraine. $1.85 billion package of security assistance that includes both direct transfers of equipment to you that Ukraine needs, as well as contracts to supply ammunition Ukraine will need in the months ahead for its artillery, its tanks, and its rocket launchers. 
Critically, in addition to these new capabilities, like precision aerial munitions, the package will include a Patriot missile battery, which will, and on which will train Ukrainian forces to operate as part of the ongoing effort to help bolster Ukraine's air defense. It's going to take some time to complete the necessary training, but the Patriot battery will be another critical asset for Ukraine as it defends itself against Russian aggression. Altogether, today's new security assistance with humanitarian funding amounts to $2.2 billion in additional support for the Ukrainian people. We should be clear about what Russia is doing. It is purposefully attacking Ukraine's critical infrastructure, destroying the systems to provide heat and light to the Ukrainian people during the coldest, darkest part of the year. Russia is using winter as a weapon, freezing people, starving people, cutting them off from one another. It's the latest example of the outrageous atrocities the Russian forces are committing against innocent Ukrainian civilians, children, and their families. And the United States is working together with our allies and partners to provide critical equipment to help Ukraine make emergency repairs to their power transmission systems and strengthen the stability of Ukraine's grid in the face of Russia's targeted attacks. We're also working to hold Russia accountable, including efforts in Congress that will make it easier to seek justice for Russia's war crimes in Ukraine. Let me close with this. Tonight is the fourth night of, night of Hanukkah, a time when Jewish people around the world, President Zelensky and many of the families among them, honor the timeless miracle of a small band of warriors fighting for their values and their freedom against a much larger foe and how they endured and how they overcame. How the flame of faith with only enough oil for one day, burned brightly for eight days. A story of survival and resilience that reminds us that the coldest days of the year, that light will always prevail over darkness, and hope drives away despair. And that the human spirit is unconquerable as long as there are good people willing to do what is right. This year has brought so much needless suffering and loss to the Ukrainian people. But I want you to know, President Zelensky, I want you to know that all the people of Ukraine to know as well, the American people have been with you every step of the way, and we will stay with you. We will stay with you for as long as it takes. What you're doing, what you've achieved, it matters not just to Ukraine, but to the entire world. And together, I have no doubt we'll keep the flame of liberty burning bright and the light will remain and prevail over the darkness. Thank you for being here, Mr. President. We're going to stand with you. Thank you. Dear Mr. President, please put on the equipment. Once again, Mr. President, President Biden, audience, journalists, ladies and gentlemen, I came here to the United States to uh, forward the thank 
the word of thanks to the people of America, people who do so much for Ukraine. I am thankful for all of this. This visit to the United States became really a historic one for our relations with the United States and the American leadership. In the last 30 days of this war, we have started a new phase of our interrelations with the United States. We became a real uh, um, partners and allies with the content. And I felt today during all of my meetings and during our talks. Once again, I would like to thank Mr. President, President Biden, for his candid support and what is very important, the understanding of Ukraine and for the support of the international coalition to strengthen international law. I am grateful to President Biden for his personal uh, efforts, his steps that unite the partners and uh, global south. When all countries of the world uh, take some position uh, and are focusing on cooperation and uh, mutual understanding, this is very uh, useful for all of the countries, for Ukraine, for the United States. I want to thank the Congress for bipartisan, bicameral support, and uh, I am looking forward to good meetings with the members of the Congress and their support. This is the visit that I am I'm here today to meet with the Congress. The main issue during my today's talks is to strengthen Ukraine. Next year, our movement forward to fight for our freedom and independence. I have good news returning home. President Biden announced a new package of defense support uh, about two billion U.S. dollars, and the strongest element of this package is the Patriots battery systems, something that will strengthen our air defense significantly. This is a very important step uh, to create a secure airspace for Ukraine, and that's the only way we would be able to deprive the terrorist uh, country and their terror attack to attack to strike our energy sector, our people, and our infrastructure. We had a very good uh, negotiation and talks about our strategic steps, which we discussed with Biden, and what we expect next year and for what we are preparing. This is very important for all Ukrainians, and I am hopeful. And once again, thank you, Mr. President, for $45 billion, because this is a big assistance, and I hope that the Congress will approve this financial assistance for our crime, uh, country. This is almost $45 billion. Thank you very much for the support. Every dollar of this investment for the United States is going to be a strengthening of global security. I know that the American leadership will be strong and will 
play important role in global scope. And the United States will help us to defend our values, values and independence. And regardless of changes in the Congress, I believe that there will be bipartisan and bicameral support. And I know that everybody works for this. And of course, during all of uh, my meetings today, uh, we discussed issues of uh, a standoff against uh, in a terror of Russia, their destruction of our energy infrastructure. We need to survive this winter. We need to protect our people, and we need to be very specific in this area. This is a key humanitarian issue for us right now. This is the survival issue. We are discussing sanctions and uh, legal pressure on the terrorist country Russia. Russia needs to uh, hold to be hold, held accountable for everything it does against us, against our people, against Europe and the whole free world. And it is very important that we have uh, the peace formula. And for that, we uh, offer very specific steps what America can do to help us to implement them. We propose global uh, formula for peace summit. I'm thankful for our American counterparts that they feel us and understand how it important it is to continue and, and uh, stay on course and uh, work on um, integrity of the country and international uh, rule of law. We will also need as soon as our defense capabilities will be strengthened in the next few months. I don't want to discuss it in details right now. I believe you understand why, and I, but I am very grateful to President Biden. Thank you for your attention to all of these issues. Glory to Ukraine. Thank you very much, Mr. President. We're going to take uh, questions from four different reporters, and let's start with Alex of Yahoo News. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, in 20, uh, 2022, you presided over a bipartisan international coalition to support Ukraine. How will you keep that coalition from fraying in 2023? And uh, President Zelensky, welcome to Washington on this beautiful winter day. What is your message to the American people? Well, answering your question first, uh, um, I'm not at all worried about holding the alliance. Наше союзницьке партнерство з країнами Європейського Союзу і іншими країнами. Okay. I've never seen NATO or the EU more united about anything at all. And uh, I see no sign of there being any change. We all know what's at stake here. Our European partners all the more so. They fully understand it. This is about, we've never seen a major invasion of a European country since World War II. And they see no signs that, that Putin is going to do anything to change that unless we resist and we help the Ukrainians resist. We all know what's at stake, the very idea of sovereignty, the UN Charter. Putin uh, thought he would weaken NATO. Instead, he strengthened NATO. I once said to him that we talk about the he want, wanted to see the, uh, you know, Europe end up being uh, um, divided. Uh, the, uh, and instead, what did he do? He produced a more united Europe with Sweden and uh, Finland joining. 
So I don't see any reason to believe there'll be any lessening of support. And as we reach out to our NATO allies, our Secretary of Defense and our Secretary of State, we get continued support, not only there, but also from around the world, from Japan and many other countries as well. So I feel very good about the solidarity of support for Ukraine. Thank you for your question. Thank you for the question. Um, tell you very simple things which are very important for me and I, and I think so that we have the same values and the same understanding of the life the sense of the life my message I wish you peace I think that is the main thing and you understand it only when the war in your country when somebody like these terrorists from Russia come to your houses. And I wish you to see your children alive and adults. And I wish you to see your children when they will go to universities and to see their children. I, th I think that is the main thing, what I can wish you. And of course, to be t together with us, jointly, because we really fight for our common victory against this tyranny That is real life, and we will win. And I really want win together. Thanks so much. Not want, sorry, I'm sure. You call on one of your people, press person? Yeah. Um, yes, please. Inter. question to both of you, but firstly, as Ukrainian, and I mean it, I want to thank the United States for supporting my country, and, you know, my family is in Ukraine, and I definitely understand they will not be alive today if uh, America will not support my country, both politically and militarily, so thank you for this. It's honest. Well. And as of my question, we enter a new phase of this war, and uh, you definitely discussed today which path to choose, uh, how the war could come to an end, and what's next. Will it turn into a new counteroffensive or some kind of peace talks? So, Mr. Biden, Mr. Zelensky, could you share your vision? What's the fair way to end this war, and how do you understand this war's uh, fair peace? Thank you. My, my view... Your guy. I think we have. Oh, oh, yeah. I, see. I see. Although I like him very much already. <laughs> you have started this question. You have started by stating that your family is in Kiev and without the assistance of the United States. Uh, this is absolutely true. The U.S. leadership in this assistance is uh, s strong. And uh, again, yeah, I would like to remind you that U.S. family will be in danger Uh, without the armed forces of Ukraine, which is very important. That concerns your questions per se. Uh, what would you like to hear uh, 
just peace? I don't know. I don't know what just peace is. It's a very philosophical description. If there is a phil- uh, just war, I don't know. Um, you know, for all of us, peace, uh, just peace is different. For me, as a president, just peace is no compromises as to the sovereignty, freedom, and territorial integrity of my country, uh, the payback for all the damages inflicted by Russian aggression. Uh, I'm sorry I'm reminding, uh, I'm talking about children a lot today, but as a father, uh, I would like to emphasize, you know, how many how many parents lost their sons and daughters on the front lines. So what is just peace for them? Money is nothing, and no compensations or reparations are uh, of, uh, of no consequence. They live by revenge, Oje. I think this is a tremendous tragedy, and the longer the war uh, lasts, the longer this aggression lasts, there will be more parents who live for the sake of vengeance or revenge. And I know a lot of people like that. So there can't be any just peace in the war that was imposed on us by these, I, I don't know how to describe that, because we are in the White House and I can't find the proper language. So these inhumans, I would say. I, I think we have the, we share the exact same vision. And uh, that a uh, free, independent, prosperous and secure Ukraine is the vision. We both want this war to end. We both want it to end. And as I've said, uh, uh, it could end a day if Putin had any dignity at all and did the right thing and just said, pulled out. But uh, that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen now. So what comes next? We talked about today was we're going to continue to help Ukraine succeed on the battlefield. It can succeed in the battlefield with our help and the help of our European allies and others. So that if and when President Zelensky is ready to talk with the Russians, he will be able to succeed as well because he will have won on the battlefield. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't think we should underestimate the impact this war is having on Russia and the losses they're suffering. And uh, you saw just, uh, I think it was two days ago, Putin uh, saying that uh, this is much tougher than he thought. He thought he could break NATO. He thought he could break the West. He thought he could break the alliance. He thought he could be welcomed by the Ukrainian people that were Russian-speaking. He was wrong, wrong, and wrong. He continues to be wrong. The sooner he makes it, it's clear that he cannot possibly win this war, that's when the time we have to put the, this president in a position to be able to decide how he wants the war to end. My turn, huh? Please, yeah. Phil Madley, Matt uh, uh, Madley of uh, CNN. Thank you, Mr. President. Welcome, Mr. President. Mr. President, to start with you. Um, your advisors often talk about how important, how critically important you view face-to-face interaction. I'm wondering, after spending two-plus hours face-to-face with President Zelensky, 
what you learned or what you took from the meeting that perhaps you couldn't glean or learn in the phone calls or video conferences? And somewhat tied to that, was there any discussion related to the U.S. assessment that Russia would not take escalatory action now that Patriots are being sent, will be del- a Patriot battery will be delivered? Let me answer the first question, the first part of your question. You know I get kidded for saying that there's uh, all politics is personal. It's all about looking someone in the eye, and I mean it sincerely. I don't think there's any, any, any substitute for sitting down face-to-face with a friend or a foe and looking them in the eye. And uh, that's exactly uh, what's happening at this moment. We've done that more than once, and we're going to continue to do it. And the winter is setting in, and Putin is uh, increasingly going after civilian targets and women and children, orphanages. This guy is, well, but, uh, but he's going to fail. And uh, he's going to fail. He's already failed because he now knows that there's no way he's ever going to occupy all of Ukraine. There's no way in which he's going to be accepted by the Ukrainian people. And so uh, he's failed in the past and it was very important uh, for him and everyone else to see that President Zelensky and I are united uh, two countries together to make sure he cannot succeed. And I think I may be mistaken, but I know I judge every leader by the way they what they say to me, their consistency and look him in the eye. This guy has in his to his very soul is who he says he is. It's clear who he is. He's willing to give his life for his country. And all the folks that were with, came with him today. And so I think it's, uh, he, it's an important for him to know we are going to do everything in our power, everything in our power to see that he succeeds. Thanks. What was the second part of your question? I just asked if you had discussed how the U.S. calculated the escalatory effect of sending a Patriot missile battery to Ukraine. I did not discuss that at all with the, with the president, but I, we do not. It's a defensive system. It's a defensive weapon system. It's not escalatory. It's defensive. And it's easy to uh, not, and we'd love to not have to have them use it. Just stop the attacks. President Zelensky, uh, again, welcome. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to make this trip uh, for a while now. Why now? And also, can you tell me what you think the message you are sending to President Putin is, given the fact that 24 hours ago you were on the ground in the front lines with artillery echoing behind you, and now you find yourself in the White House standing next to the president? Thank you very much for your question. As to what is the message for Putin? I am standing here in the United States with President Biden on the same podium because I respect him as a a person, as a president, as a human being for his uh, position. And for me, this is a historic moment. I can send messages to President Biden, for example, If it's not serious, you said, what's going to happen after patriots uh, are installed? After that, we will send another signal to President Biden that we would like to get more patriots. I'm really sorry. Uh, 
as to President Putin. In 2019, we had a Normandy meeting. In 2019, I became the president of Ukraine, and at that time, we were sending maximum messages to President Putin, telling him that there shouldn't be a full-scale invasion to stop aggression, to renew our territory, territorial integrity, to find diplomatic solution. God forbid we should not have a full-scale war. At that time, he said it won't happen. He was lying. So what kind of message I can send him after he actually uh, 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 destroyed our life, is destroying our life. He can even go further somewhere where the Soviet Union stayed before this. So he might want to invade those territories too. I believe that there is something mortal about his inadequate approach to the world. Why we need to send him a message? He needs to be interested in getting attention from the world because he is not a subject of civilized people. He should be interested in trying to save something of his culture and history of his country. So that's his problem now. This, this will be the last question. Olya Koshlenko, OnePlus One TV channel. Uh, when the full-scale invasion uh, started, U.S. officials uh, said that Ukraine... Uh, cannot uh, receive um, Petros because, as you said, it might be um, unnecessary escalation. And now it is happening. Right now, today, it is happening. Um, and now Ukraine desperately needs more cap capabilities, including long-range missiles, uh, attackums. Maybe I sound naive, but can we make a long story short and give Ukraine all capabilities it needs and... Uh, liberate all territories rather sooner than later. Thank you. His answer is yes. <laughs> I agree. Let me be straightforward with you here. Дозвольте мені бути відвертим з вами. Факт полягає в that before Russia invaded, we uh, dedicated an enormous amount of security assistance to Ukraine. And, uh, and we've given Ukraine what they needed, when they needed to defend themselves. And since the invasion, that has resulted in more than $20 billion in terms of security assistance. Just today, I approved another $1.8 billion in additional assistance to Ukraine. Uh, for it to succeed on the battlefield. And we're focused on working with allies and partners to generate capability in four key areas. Air defense, as, known, as we know today, the Patriot is the best of that. Secondly is to, uh, and we're looking to do more, uh, we provided hundreds of advanced artillery systems and dozens of, to, from dozens of countries. Thirdly, we've worked with partners to get Ukraine tanks and other armored vehicles. And fourthly, we've announced today another 200,000 rounds of additional ammunition. Now you say, why don't we just give Ukraine everything there is to give? Well, for two reasons. One, there's an entire alliance that is critical to stay with Ukraine. 
And the idea that we would give Ukraine material that is fundamentally different than is already going there would have a prospect of breaking up NATO and breaking up the European Union and the rest of the world. We're going to give Ukraine what it needs to be able to defend itself, to be able to succeed and succeed in the battlefield. And uh, the other piece of this is, you may recall, one of the reasons why I have spent, well, I won't tell you the calculation, but I've spent several hundred hours face to face with our European allies and the heads of state of those countries and making the case as to why it was overwhelming in their interest that they continue to support Ukraine. They understand it fully, but they're not looking to go to war with Russia. They're not looking for a third world war. And they think they can all be avoided by making sure that Ukraine is able to succeed in the battlefield. So anyway, there's more to say, but I probably already said too much. Thank you. Well, thank you all very, very much. Appreciate your time and attention. And uh, as I said, Mr. President, you don't have to worry. Uh, we are staying with Ukraine as long as Ukraine is there. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Well, we just heard of President of Ukraine, Zelensky, President of the United States, Biden, speaking and taking a few questions, both from Ukrainian reporters and United States reporters. Uh, the upshot is we are committed. We are giving them patriots. And uh, Vladimir Zelensky is making it clear that while he would like this war to wrap up, Putin has lied to his face before. So he doesn't know how he can trust somebody like that. But Ukraine is in it to win it. We're going to take a break and come back with some more politics after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. From the international back to the national, one of the people we talk to on a regular basis is Daryl Rowland. He's now a political reporter, an investigative reporter for WSYX-TV, the ABC affiliate in Columbus, and uh, joins us once again. Daryl, how are you today? I'm doing well, Joan. It's great to be back with you. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing remarkably well. I I don't know if you know how you pay attention to us, but... um, I um, just finished up my third bout of COVID. I am back in the saddle again, and uh, and I'm you know I'm I'm moving forward as they say. So uh, okay, I'm glad you got it, got rid of it before the holidays hit here. Well, I hope so. I hope it is gone and and buried. So, what should we be paying attention to in Ohio right now? Well, I tell you, we can we can segue right off your, uh, you know, you're you're carrying the, the presidents of both Ukraine and the United States live there, and both of Ohio senators, uh, Democrat Jared Brown, Republican Rob Portman, has, has spoken on the the topic of Ukraine and continued aid within the last 24 hours. Um, let's start with Senator Portman. He is uh, about to leave office, of course, after. Couple terms in uh, the Senate and uh, a long time in Congress was part of the Bush administration. Uh, you know, one of the long political careers in recent Ohio history. He is also the co-founder of the Ukraine Caucus uh, in the Senate. He's been there 
probably a dozen times in recent years he's met personally with, with President Zelensky, uh, you know, on many of his trips. So he is a, an ardent supporter of, you know, we need to do more. In fact, he's, he's pressed the Biden administration from day one and, and uh, you know, to, to get, you know, to get the aid. So he was very welcome you know, the fact that uh, the Patriot missile batteries would be on their way to help the Ukraine people uh, defend themselves. Um, now, the contrast there, of course, is his successor is, is J.D. Vance, as most of your listeners probably remember, the author of Hillbilly Elegy a few years back. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to went to California and uh, you know did some uh, financial stuff, came back to Ohio, ran for the Senate, won a very tough primary, and then won a I think it's a six-point victory. Um, well, I guess it's still just last month, isn't it? It seems forever ago. But uh, <laughs> yeah. the right to succeed Senator Portman, uh, you know, it's going to stay in Republican hands, but J.D. Vance is, is very much more in the mold of, of former President Trump when it comes to former policy. Uh, uh, you know, America first, uh, almost in, in, in Senator-elect Vance's case, America only. Uh, very early on, he uh, was very dismissive of Ukraine's plight. Uh, you, you know, I mean, he expressed some personal sympathy for, of course, the suffering that was going on, but he said, no way, no how. We should not be there. We should not be rendering aid. That's their fight. We need to, and he, you know, his rhetoric was, instead of sending the money to Ukraine, we need to put it on the southern border that reinforce uh you know the border. So you know, the Senate's going to see a real contrast from the uh, from the junior senator in Ohio. You know, Daryl, we know uh, that a lot of times people take a position that might be more fierce than they really believe in an effort to appeal to the most voters. Uh, J.D. Vance has certainly taken some strong positions, but also, you know, he's in the Senate now and. Mitch McConnell has a reputation as somebody who leads the Senate with an iron hand. Um, we need to take a real quick break because we started late. But, Daryl, when we come back, sure. I want you to uh, to comment on J.D. Vance and whether or not you think he'll be, is he going to be like a Marjorie Taylor Greene and a thorn in McConnell's side, or do you think he will be a loyal foot soldier? I'm um, talking to Daryl Rowland. He is a reporter, a political and investigative reporter in Columbus, Ohio. We'll be back with more after this. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. Need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by uh, Daryl Rowland. He is a political and investigative reporter currently working at uh, WSYX-TV, the ABC affiliate in Columbus, Ohio. And we are talking about the political wins and losses, particularly J.D. Vance, who is uh, very much in the MAGA vein. And uh, yet... Um, I'm wondering, and maybe Daryl can shed some light on the fact of whether or not when he actually takes his seat in the Senate, does he become one of Mitch McConnell's loyal soldiers or does he become a Marjorie Taylor Greene and continue to be a thorn in the side of 
more mainstream Republicans. Do you have any feel for who this guy is, Daryl? Well, Joan, I think you put your finger on a, a real intriguing question that uh, a lot of us in Ohio are, are waiting to find out firsthand. Uh, because, he, as you said, his rhetoric uh, on the campaign trail was was very Donald Trump-like, uh, you know, very anti-globalist. Uh, you know, he backed off a little bit on the, the election denial, but it, it came down to he still, you know, did not think the 2020 election of, of President Biden was, was fair. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, once he actually gets in the, the big boy chair, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. will he moderate that tone? Will he try to accommodate? I, now, now, he was one, frankly, who was not um, shy at all about criticizing the quote-unquote Republican establishment along with the Democratic establishment during the campaign. And, of course, Who's more establishment than uh, than uh, Minority Leader McConnell? Really? Well, that's going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Also, I saw one little blurb on this a week or so ago, because, you know, obviously Kevin McCarthy is doing his darndest to garner the votes to become the next Speaker of the House. By all accounts, you know, he's got the moderates on one hand and the um, less moderate on the other hand giving him grief. I actually saw some speculation that it was possible that Jim Jordan might end up as speaker. Anybody in Ohio heard anything about your congressman possibly being in line or being interested? Well, certainly the former. Um, I mean, the, the guy is so high profile. He's you know almost a, a regular Fox News correspondent, and, and you know the Newsmax and the, the folks like that. Um, and he's you know much more of a national figure, quite frankly, these days than he is an Ohio figure. Certainly a figure back in his district in Northwest Ohio. Um, so yeah, there's been lots of speculation. If McCarthy can't put it, you know, pull it off. And of course, it's a lot of the Freedom Caucus members who are giving him some grief. Well, gee, Jim Jordan is a co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, so who better to get that uh, gavel if McCarthy's not? Now, Jordan has uh, pledged up and down his, his undying support uh, for Representative McCarthy. So uh, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the interesting juncture is going to come if he, you know, push comes to shove. And it, it does indeed become a reality that McCarthy just can't get the votes. Well, where does that Republican caucus go then? I mean, do they do they go to a Jordan? Or um, Andy Biggs? I can't Scalia? see Andy Biggs pulling it off. Well, I was seeing speculation about Steve Scalise today huh? as well. So, you know, this is our our favorite parlor game now. Is dark. We got the election <laughs> over, but boy, we still got some politics to talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Does anybody in Ohio, do you get the sense that people in Ohio, which um, has become, we all acknowledge, a pretty red state, do people care that Jim Jordan's name is one of the names that's being referred to the Ethics Committee by the January 6th Committee, and they want him, among a few others, to be censured for ignoring their subpoenas? Is that a big deal in Ohio? Well, it was, it was a big deal enough to me where I, you know, I, I wrote a story for our news, for our TV station's website, and you know we had something on the air. I mean, obviously the main 
uh, the referral of former President Trump, of course, dominated that move. But yeah, one of our local guys is among the four who's referred to House Ethics. Now, two things. So many people, I mean, if you're a Jim Jordan fan whatsoever, you think all this is all just political and one-sided um, as well. And even if you are not of that persuasion, I think the real politic of nothing's going to happen to him, um, especially with Republicans coming in, even though it's a bipartisan ethics committee. It's, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. think there's even going to be a, a, a slap on the wrist. And, and frankly, Congress itself is, is held in such large contempt, uh, small C contempt, if you will, um, that someone like Jim Jordan say, yeah, I don't want to talk to you. Most people probably think, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to talk to him either. I'm with him all the way. Okay. So, yeah, I don't think it is that, that big of a deal. Um, you know, to, to you and me and to a lot of your listeners, it's like, this is yet one more norm that's being violated that we're seeing that's you know, and, you know, okay, I won't say I'm certainly not unprecedented, but certainly a rarity that has become all too common in the recent years. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, and I think you also wrote about this for the website, was the big protest that took place at the State House as um, as plans were being made to try to make some constitutional changes. Tell us about that. Oh, in Ohio, we just literally wrapped up a two-year legislative session, and uh, as happens every two years, frankly, this is when reporters hate it the most, because in that lame-duck period, who knows what gets done. They're rushing to get out of there before Christmas, before the legislative session is over, so bills are jammed together, things that normally would take multiple hearings to vet and to consider and to get full testimony. They're slapped on as an amendment onto another bill in the middle of the night. There's votes taken. Um, I was I was watching a, a committee remotely the other day uh, that rolled out one of these uh, issues. And, it, you know, it, there was like a, it started out as a 15-page bill and it wound up to be uh, like 180 pages, something like that. And the Democrats you know, the Democratic leader on the, the, the committee, of course, the minority Democrats, Republicans control our both our Ohio House and Ohio Senate by large, large margins. He said, well, can we at least have a small recess so we can, you know, maybe at least take a glance at this? And uh, the, the committee chairwoman paused and she said, no, we have a really tight schedule. So they just <laughs> proceeded to vote, accepted it, passed it on party lines. Oh. <laughs> it's not a... Not, well... Not for- for a fan of democracy, and I, I'm not saying that to crack on the Republicans, because way back in the day when Democrats did their thing, the same way. That, you know, people, people who don't follow government don't realize how much fun they're missing out on. I mean, I was in... <laughs> I don't I don't know if you remember um, many, many, many years ago. And I mean, like decades ago, I was around for the Chicago City Council meetings where, you know, people would get on top of their desks and shout. One alderman <laughs> took off his shoe and was banging it to try to get people's attention. I mean, you know, I may be and you may be government geeks, but the people who are not, they don't realize on what they are missing out on because it's just Oh, it's sometimes the the it's more theater than theater is. It's just really it's really fascinating. Uh, one more thing before I let you go. I, I, I know you were writing about 
Um, this idea of a photo ID mandated to be able to vote. Tell us what's going on with that story. Yeah, Ohio wants to, to join the states that uh, require not just an ID, which we do already, but a photo ID that's issued by the government or the military um, to, before you can vote. Hmm. In, uh, last night, uh, we had the head of the Ohio Association of Election Officials. Now, what that is, Ohio is by law, and that has one of the the better laws in the country where election administration is 100% evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. So this group is, a, is by nature a totally, fully bipartisan, as a 50-50 bipartisan group. But they are virtually unanimously condemning this move to a photo ID. They say voter fraud or voter impersonation fraud simply does not exist in Ohio. I mean, they could speak to Ohio, but of course, I've seen all sorts of testimony from various places across the country. This is just not a thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, who's going to be negatively impacted by this? It's going to be um, disproportionately the poor, uh, the older voters, and the disabled voters. They are giving free state IDs to folks who don't have a driver's license or, what, you know, one of the, the stipulated forms of ID. However, and I I kind of got my eyes open as well on that as well when people said, well, you know, this isn't really free. Let's walk through this because what do you need to get a free ID? You need documentation. You need a birth certificate. If you need a certified cop in Ohio, that's over 20 bucks for a single sheet of paper. And, of course, you got to go to the health department to grab that. Um, If you've gone through a name change or something like that, you probably will need either your marriage certificate or your divorce papers. Um, and, divorce, you know, some divorce settlements are really long, and those local courts like to charge about a buck a page. Um, and then I talked to a retired attorney. Um, her, her, her mother died about four years ago, but she said her mother was uh, a wheelchair user. So she would have had to go to the one of the Bureau of Motor Vehicle offices to get her documentation that meant getting a wheelchair accessible cab because she didn't have any, you know, she didn't drive, of course, and none of the family had wheelchair accessible vehicles or, or even, uh, you know, getting a van. And that starts getting very expensive. Um, so, you know, you just add it up and it's, um, you know, you have a few dollars here, a few dollars there. And she said it would have yep. cost my mother one or $200 for this quote unquote free ID. So yeah. that is on Governor Mike DeWine's desk. Um, we don't know if he's going to sign it or not sign it. Um, uh, real fast, uh, you mentioned changing the Constitution. Uh, there's a move to make it so you have to have a 60% threshold to amend the Ohio Constitution. Um, we were one of the states uh, back in the Progressive Era of 1912 that allows citizens to, if you get enough signatures, you can bring an issue to the ballot. Mm-hmm. And the people vote. And for the past 110, literally the past 110 years, you know, 50% plus one prevailed. Well, now it's 60%. And, of course, what is happening in Ohio, like many states, uh, there are the, uh, our pro-choice friends are trying to put together, uh, you know, a ballot issue for either next year or the following year to make, do institutionalize, uh, you know, that Ohio is a an abortion rights state, that abortion rights will be allowed in Ohio. 
Now, that's something that if you go by polls, that polls at about mm, maybe 58% or so in Ohio. So it's over majority, but it doesn't quite hit that 60% threshold. Uh-huh. Uh, the same for redistricting reform. It's the same. Uh, they want to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So, now, of course, the Republicans insist up and down. Oh, no, this has nothing to do with that. But there was, I talk about those late night lame duck sessions. Um, the, after we reported on it, after there's a big 500 people inside the Ohio State House protesting this, even the Republican House could not muster enough votes to jam this through at the end of the year. But the, the main Republican sponsor of the bill sent out a last minute memo. The same guy who said, oh, this is about big picture constitutional things. He emphasized two things. One was we need to head off the right to lifers, and we need to head off the redistricting reformers. <laughs> I didn't know what You know, politics is always interesting, and it's always personal. But I got to tell you, what's going on in Ohio? Man, sometimes it feels like you're reporting on the Wild West. It is, uh, <laughs> it's really, it's it's fascinating and uh, I know how important it is, but damn, it's entertaining as hell as well, Daryl. I, I thank you for bringing uh, all the information to us. I know you. I know you have to go. I thank you for hanging in there, and uh, let's talk again in the new year. All right, Joan, and uh, take care of yourself. I hope you get back to feeling one hundred percent, and uh, we'll see what fun twenty twenty three brings us both. Yes, we will. Thank you, Mister Roland. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820. You know, around the holiday, um, I like to sometimes focus on just something for a few minutes that's a little bit lighter. And um, as we discovered earlier, we were talking about libraries. You know I love books, and I love books that are about Chicago. We, a while back, talked to uh, an author who had written about the oldest places in Chicago. Uh, David Witter is back now with Distilled in Chicago. Hello, David. How are you? Hi. Great. Thank you for having me on. Um, what prompted you to look into uh, Chicago's history with alcohol? Just the important role that it's played throughout the history of the city. Um, basically, the first three businesses were taverns that served alcohol and our history of prohibition and the immigrants, uh, Irish, German, Eastern European, Swedish. It's, you know, it, it, it's important all over the nation and the world, but Chicago it seems to be a little more important and play a larger role in the city's history. Tell me what kind of role it played. You know, I don't know when, let's see, when did you, when did you start reporting? You start, um, you know, you start back as far back as when alcohol was illegal. What was, once it became legal though, what would you describe? What kind of role did it play in the development of Chicago? Do you mean after prohibition? Yes. Or just well, you know, even before it's always Chicago's been a center of, of uh, you know Frances Willard, who was head of the WCTU. She was in Evanston, and her office was in Chicago, and uh, so people like that 
Uh, Billy Sunday was from Chicago, so we had a role in the temperance movement. After, and one interesting uh, aspect I had in the book, uh, Cobol, which is a, a distillery, uh, was actually the first grain-to-bottle distillery in Chicago for over 100 years. We actually didn't have a lot of distilleries here for over 100 years for various reasons. Um, there was a Peoria Whiskey Trust during the late 1800s, much like the trusts of Rockefeller and Carnegie that controlled the whiskey business and sort of shut Chicago out. Then there was the temperance movement. Then there was prohibition. Um, and then after the war, you know, still no uh, alcohol or spirits were made here. Um, That's interesting because Chicago has become known as a great place for microbreweries. We may not be making a lot of hard liquor, but we certainly seem to like to make beer. Oh, we have, you know, in the, since Cobol and since 2008, we have a, a distilling industry that has grown here. There's a few in Evanston. Um, there's other distilleries, uh, Wolf Point, Ryan Hall. So we do have Chicago distillery. We have a lot of, uh, you know, micro distilleries or boutique distilleries in Chicago, and it's actually become kind of a, you know, a, a mini industry and a mini tourist attraction here. What are some of the Chicago brands of alcohol that maybe we want to start looking for when we're shopping? Well, like I had mentioned um, Wolf Point, which I which I enjoy writing about because the city actually started at Wolf Point, and uh, it's my my theory that many of the trappers came here to 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 drink alcohol to get away from trapping and being in the woods and this terrible weather that we experience. <laughs> Inside, they were outside, so they would come to Wolf Point to enjoy some warm weather and alcohol. And Wolf Point, the new distillery, kind of takes that tradition of really when Chicago was started at Wolf Point in, in the Wolf Tavern. And they have a their logo is a wolf and a teepee and kind of what Chicago was like in 1830, more or less. That's a good one. Um, Cobol is, is, is the first... Um, uh, distillery that's in Ravenswood. That's about, and that's been in business since um, 2008. And, and, and actually, the people at Cobol were very instrumental in getting laws passed and uh, regulations. There, there, since there was no distilleries here for 100 years, there was no no laws. There was no way to get a license and all that all that kind of thing. So they actually were monumental in getting all that started. David, I really like your books because no matter what the topic is you really do a deep dive into a, into history and you know people who read this book or your other book oldest chicago you know you learn a lot more than you think you're going to learn about when you when you pick these up what's what's one historical item that you think might surprise our listeners that you that you write about in distilled in chicago well, two things. The fact that no alcohol was distilled here for um, over 100 years, and one of the reasons was because the prohibition before that, the temperance before that, the whiskey trust. Then after that, there was, you know, Chicago's always been a beer town. We had Germans come here in the 1840s. We have marvelous breweries. Um, we had marvelous breweries throughout the city throughout the uh, 19th century from our German immigrants. Um but we, another reason we didn't have a lot of distilling is because after Prohibition, um, Frank Nitti, who, who allegedly controlled the, um, you know, the, the, the mafia or whoever controlled the alcohol, he and Al Capone were both arrested 
due to federal charges. And, and, and Nettie's contention was that he wanted to continue to make beer in Chicago because there was less federal involvement as far as huh. oversight. Um, you know, he could make the beer. Nobody really cared. He could make money making the beer. Whereas, you know, if you notice every bottle of alcohol have or has that whiskey stamp on it, there's the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. There's a lot more oversight. Mm-hmm. So he just, he Interesting. just to, to stick with the beer. Um, but there are also a lot of entrepreneurs that, um, that came to Chicago after Prohibition, that, that they were they um they were called rectifiers. So what they did is they they took grain spirits from places like Indiana and made things like peppermint schnapps, uh, cinnamon schnapps, uh, Polinkovic sort of ethnic liquors. And so they were there was a few companies and a few people who made uh, some some good money. Uh, the, the Coopers, the Abelsons, Getz, Levitts. Um, families that uh, made some good money in the liquor industry in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in Chicago. Well, I'm telling uh, our audience, uh, if you're if you're looking for a gift for a history buff, Distilled in Chicago, A History by David Witter, is, um, is really amazing. Great history, great documentation, wonderful pictures. And who doesn't love to read about the Chicago of years past. David, thank you so much for joining us to tell us a little bit about your newest history book. I await the next one. Thank you. And I, I await the coverage of your station's coverage of the mayoral race. And yes. I will say that I am going to miss Dick Kay because I yeah. listened to him and uh, he, he kind of knew what was going on. And I really he sure did, didn't yeah. he? I miss him. Yeah. I miss him every day. Thank you, David. Uh, that's going to do it for me. Patty Vasquez is up next. That uh, mayoral forum uh, David was just talking about. January 26th at noon. I will see you tomorrow. Stay warm, okay? Do whatever you need to do. How about a nice Chicago beverage? Oh, works for me. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Until then, have a great evening. Good night.